A layman looks at the book of Revelation. Keith Gorgas 2021. The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 21. Two concurrent subjects are brought before us in the final two chapters of this book. They are the eternal state, a new heaven and new earth, and new Jerusalem, the eternal state of the church. Some writers see John switch back and forth between the millennium and the eternal state here, but I don't think that is the case. I am open to the possibility that I'm wrong on that. The final judgment and eternal damnation of those who must stand before the great white throne clears the way for the ushering in of an entirely new cosmos. Isaiah was shown beyond the millennial kingdom of our Lord. In Isaiah chapter 65 verse 17 we read, For behold I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind, 66-22 For as the new heavens and new earth, which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. Saint Peter tells us, seeing that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved? and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea is no more. This earth was never intended to last forever. Scientists who have observed the breakdown of the sun's intensity have concluded that, at the rate it is decreasing, 10,000 years ago, it would have been too hot to allow life on earth. And in 10,000 years it would be too cold. All through the scriptures we find the principle, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. It's always been about eternity. We learn here that the oceans, so important for the sustenance of life today, will be done away with. In that about two-thirds s of the earth is covered by water today, it seems that the eternal new earth will have a much greater carrying capacity than our current world. This doesn't say that there will be no more water. Perhaps there will be lakes and ponds, we just don't know because scripture is silent on the subject. I want to take note of something very important before moving on in this chapter. I will quote a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But the fact is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man death came, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to our God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says, all things are put in subjection, it is clear that this excludes the Father who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. The millennial kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is a moral necessity. For he must reign. As a perfect man, he has won the right to rule. God will finally answer all the indignities heaped on him will glory and honor before all. When the final enemy, death itself is finally abolished, that will bring the end. In his great love for us, the Lord has chosen to remain a man forever. As man, he will deliver up the kingdom to God, he remains the eternal God, that God may be all in all. The day of the Lord concludes with the dissolution of the present creation, and the eternal day of God begins with the new creation. And the holy city, New Jerusalem, I saw coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The church is forever linked with Christ, as a bride is to her husband. What raised the wondrous thought? Or who did it suggest? That we, the church, to glory brought. 
should with the sun be blessed. O God, the thought was thine. Thine only it could be. Fruit of thy wisdom, love divine. Peculiar unto thee. And I heard a loud voice out of the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall tabernacle with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them, the God. Ever since Adam's fall, God's heart has longed for communion with his creatures. Sin has been a barrier to that full free communion, but in the eternal state there will be no sin and God will rest in his love. God will make his permanent abode with men, and as beloved children around a loving father, each will enjoy the other's fellowship without fear or reservation. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and no mourning nor crying nor pain shall be any more, for the first things have passed away. Sorrow, crying, pain, and death are all the results of sin, directly or indirectly. Sin will never enter that blessed scene, and neither will the fruits of sin. God will wipe away every tear and not only are the former things passed away, the very memory of them will be gone. As I write these words, I have no assurance that some of my children and grandchildren have never accepted God's offer of salvation. And it's very hard to picture being in eternal blessing and not grieving for friends and loved ones in hell, but we have the sure words of God telling us that no sorrow will ever encroach on our joy there. Nor will we sorrow over past sins and times we failed the Lord. Past pains and suffering will be gone forever, and if it is even recalled at all, the memories will only serve to enhance our joy and thankfulness. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he saith to me, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Here John is commissioned to write, not by an angel, but by the Lord himself. He has given his word, he will make all things new. His promises are, yea and amen. Do you think it will take him millions of years to fashion and form the new heavens and new earth? I don't. We'll have a front row seat to watch his final and lasting creation take shape, and I expect to enjoy watching in complete awe. And he said to me, they're done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him that is a thirst I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely. Now the Lord, who inhabits eternity declares everything, done. No to God are all his works from the beginning. The Lord Jesus declares himself the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. These are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. All things were made by him and for him. What I find so lovely, so in keeping with the Lord's gracious character, is that when sealing the final eternal judgment of the wicked, the Lord offers full and free salvation to anyone who will hear. To him that is a thirst I will give the fountain of the water of life freely. There is no charge, nothing to be offered by the repentant sinner in exchange for God's gift of eternal life. Once I was hitchhiking out west, and I was very thirsty. I passed a house with a woman out watering her flowers and asked, maybe begged, for a cup of water. She demanded two dollars, which I didn't have. In desperation, I took a drink from an irrigation system, the water was laden with fertilizer. I got so sick to my stomach I thought I was going to die. How different from the heart of God, who delights to quench the parched sinner's thirst freely. He that overcometh shall inherit these things, and I will be God to him, and he shall be a son to me. We are reminded that we are in a spiritual battle, and that perseverance is what we need to overcome. Inheriting all things with Christ and being a child of God are prize. But for the cowardly and faithless and abominable and murderers and fornicators and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part shall be in the lake that burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I think it was C.S. Lewis who used the illustration of a blinding snowstorm or whiteout, to explain why God allows evil and bad. If everything was pure white, you would discern nothing. Add black lines on a paper, and the white objects take shape. It is the contrast of good with evil that places good in bold relief. 
the eternal judgment of sin will give context to the eternal joys we will live in. Here is a list of people who will excluded from that blissful eternal state. The cowardly, faithless, and abominable are mentioned first. A cowardly person doesn't have the Holy Spirit working in him, as God has not given us the spirit of cowardice. To be cowardly is to not have the conviction to stand for what is right. A faithless person refuses to take God at his word. There are numerous things that God declares to be an abomination to him. The apostate church welcomes and embraces things that God has designated abominations. Murderers, who do not value the life that God has miraculously brought about are excluded. Fornicators set the fulfillment of their selfish lusts above the holiness of God. Sorcerers use drugs and other means to delve into things God has hidden and forbidden. They seek spiritual knowledge and control apart from God's truth and narrow path. Idolatry is to place anything in the place that God alone must occupy, as an object of veneration or worship. Lastly liars will have their part in the lake of fire and brimstone. A lie is the opposite of truth. God is truth, and his word is truth. This is a solemn warning and reminder of God's holiness. It must not be taken lightly, but when one turns to God in repentance for any of these sins, he is forgiven and cleansed. Now is the accepted time, behold now is the day of salvation. We have arrived at a most wonderful part of scripture, the Lord has saved the best wine, till last. The last we read of the church in the third chapter of this book, she was in a sorry state. The voice words, of the people, Laodicea was lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, blind, naked and impoverished, while imagining herself as rich and in need of nothing. The Lord was seen as outside the door, knocking in search of individual faithfulness and communion. We did see her coming out of heaven with the Lord into battle, arrayed in fine white linen, which is the righteous acts of the saints. We now are given a closer look at our eternal portion. And there came one of the seven angels that had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. One of the messenger angels who had been involved in the pouring out of God's wrath occupies a new office here. He is John's tour guide to the New Jerusalem. Note that he doesn't say, come up hither, but simply, come hither. I believe this suggests that the expanse that has separated heaven from earth no longer keeps them apart. The tabernacle of God is with men, and the Creator and his creatures are in continual communion. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, having the glory of God. To understand what this great and high mountain is, let's look at Hebrews chapter 12 verses 22 to 24. But ye come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. We find in both these passages several things linked together. Mount Zion, grace, the new Jerusalem, the city of God, and the church. The book of Ephesians tells us in no uncertain terms that the church is the bride of Christ. The church will enjoy an intimacy and union with Christ that is distinct. Now here is the recorded description of the church in eternity. I don't profess to be able to decode most of the symbolism written here, others have written some useful teachings on the meaning of the various gemstones and other parts of the imagery. I will simply share what little I see and enjoy the view as I wait on the Lord for further light. Its light was like a stone most precious, as a jasper stone clear as crystal, the church is seen here, not arrayed in her own righteous acts, but clothed in all the glory of God. Two things are evident about her light, it is both precious and clear. The church is precious to Christ. Is the church precious to me? Do I value her as Christ does? What kind of light am I shining forth with? Is it clear as crystal? 
it had a wall great and high, it had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel, what purpose does a wall serve? To keep out unwanted elements and threats. Satan entered the scene in the Garden of Eden and quickly spoiled things. Nothing will be able to do that in the New Jerusalem. Now there are twelve gates in the walls, named for the twelve tribes of Israel. The church owes an eternal debt to Israel. Salvation is of the Jews, the scripture says. Christ came as the seed of Abraham, and the new covenant, the blessings of which we partake, is with the house of Israel. On the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. The only thing I can gather from this is that entrance to heaven is open to the whole world, from every corner of the earth. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Paul told us that the foundation of the church is the apostles, Christ himself, being the chief cornerstone. Today, we are to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and the fellowship based on it. And he that talked with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city and the gates of it and the wall of it. I take it that when God pulls out the measuring tape, he wants us to appreciate the entirety of something. He wants us to become familiar with the width, height, and depth of the subject to be measured and the city leaf quadrangular, and the length of it is as much as the breadth, and he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand stadia, the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. I don't know the significance of the numbers here, but I do know this is a gigantic city. Its footprint is over two million square miles, but it is as high as it is broad and deep. If my calculations are correct, this city occupies two billion, six hundred and twenty-eight million, seventy-two thousand cubic miles. Mind-boggling, to say the least. There certainly is room for any who want to be there. I know there is significance in all the details presented here, but I must confess almost complete ignorance of them. I could simply quote what other commentators have written, but that would be undigested food, so I will encourage you to search these out for yourself. And he measured the wall of it, and hundred forty and four cubits, a man's measure which is of the angel. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it seems to be telling us that men and angels are of similar size, although size doesn't seem to be the right measurement of spirit being. And the building of its wall was jasper, and the city pure gold like pure glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every precious stone, the first foundation jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl. The ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprasis, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each one of the gates severally was of one pearl, and the street of the city pure gold as transparent glass. My friend Tom Clement has written a helpful book on the meaning of the various gemstones, but I gave my copy to my grandson and no longer have access to it. Even without know what the various gems symbolize, I think we all understand from the description that it is a place of mind-boggling beauty and perfection. It is here that we will find the many abodes that our Lord has gone to prepare for us. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty is the temple of it, and the Lamb. There will be no need of a designated meeting place for God and man to come together, as his presence will pervade the entire scene. And the city has no need of the sun nor of the moon, that they should shine on it, for the glory of God illumined it, and the Lamb is the lamp of it. The first chapter of Hebrews tells us that the Lord Jesus is the brightness of his glory and the effulgence, outshining, as the sunlight is the effulgence of the sun, of his person. God, who is light and in him is no darkness at all, will be the light of that place. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth bring the glory unto it. The new Jerusalem will share its light with the newly created world, and will receive glory from the kings of the earth. 
these kings, rather than being dominating tyrants, will be benign leaders, and will lead in worship. And the gates of it shall in no wise be shut by day, for there shall be no night there. Intercourse between the new creation and new Jerusalem will be unrestricted and abiding. There will be no need for adopting a defensive position as all threats will be gone. As a boy, I used to ask my father what would happen if sin came into the eternal state. The answer is simply, it can't. All sin will be gone, gone with sinners into the lake of fire, and the great wall around the city will forever protect it. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations unto it. Some have assumed that because the nations are mentioned that this must be during the millennium. I think it merely indicates that families of the earth will continue to live in specified places. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything common, and one practicing abomination and a lie, but those that are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This is a bright and blessed scene, where sin can never come. Again the Holy Spirit warns that no one practicing an abomination or a lie will be able to enter that sphere. This should serve as a sober warning to any that think that God will tolerate homosexuals in heaven. He will save and cleanse any homosexual who comes to him, but he will change them.